0: Is that 2.58? I think that's still safe, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I am okay. Uh, mostly, mostly okay. It is exciting to have the chance to be here and talk to you guys today. Um, and maybe actually, before I do get started, it's a good idea for you guys to all take a 10-second heart check as well and just calm yourself a little bit, prepare yourself for what God may speak to you about this morning. So, I'm going to time 10 seconds again. told you it was a long time. So, many of you are probably wondering about the title of this sermon. Um, I've heard lots of questions about it. I've heard lots of people discussing amongst themselves, what is this sermon about? What is he talking about? Now, lots of you also have no idea what I'm talking about right now because you didn't read your bulletin last week and have not read it yet this week. But the title is, Someone Just Lost an Eye. And uh, for many of you, you still have no idea what that means. So um, I'm going to talk about that a little bit, and we'll get to that later on. But actually, the first time I wrote that down, I uh, was sending an email to Pastor Gary last week about what the title of the sermon was going to be, and I typed it into the email. And I looked at it, and immediately the first thing I thought of was a joke I heard from the laser children a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what do you call a fish with no eyes? <laughs> yes, some of you know it. It's a fish. It's just a fish. So, fish with no eyes. So, that's not what I'm talking about this morning, but I did think of that immediately when I typed that out. Um, some of <laughs> Again, we're back to 10 seconds. <laughs> good work, Mary Lou. <clears throat> But that's not really what I'm going to talk about this morning. I'm also not going to talk about an eye for an eye. That's been a rumored uh, suggestion from a few people, um, whether the Old Testament commandment or Hammurabi's code. Uh, for those of you who might know who Hammurabi was he, was, he had that law in there as well, an eye for an eye. I'm not going to talk about Gandhi and his take on that quote. Um, I'm also not going to be talking about a plank in one person's eye and a speck in somebody else's eye. Uh, that, there's lots of good sermons on those things too. Some of you are thinking, okay, well, who was blind in the Bible? There was that guy in the New Testament. His name was Bartimaeus. Jesus healed him. Not talking about him either. Um, and some of you, particularly maybe some of you in this row, are probably thinking of Samson because we talked about him in youth a couple of months ago. Uh, I'm also not really talking about Samson this morning, but I do want to start there. The story of Samson is a very violent story. It's about a guy who killed thousands and thousands of Philistines in his lifetime. It's, it's not very pleasant. Um, I mean, it's good because we usually think of him as a good guy and he's killing the bad guys. But if you really think about it, this is a guy who just slaughters his enemies without even thinking twice. And so I've sometimes wondered, why is this in the Bible? That seems pretty extreme to me. Um, is, is that something that should be even recorded for, for us? <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, again, put the youth on the spot here. See if anybody remembers. There was a question I kept asking over and over and over again when we did the story of Samson and youth. um, Throughout the night, probably five or six times, I asked the same question about Samson. Does anyone remember what it is? And is anyone brave enough to say it if they remember what it is? Maybe not. So my question was, is this okay? Was Samson justified in taking vengeance on the Philistines in the way that he did? Is it all right for him to go around slaughtering people left and right? Is that okay? Is, is, it, is that how he should have handled it, or should he have done something differently? We know from Deuteronomy 32 that God says, Vengeance is mine. Isn't it God's place to judge the Philistines, not Samson's place? Well, it becomes pretty clear in the story of Judges, in the story of Samson, that God's plan was to use Samson as a one-man army to take down the Philistines. He didn't use the whole Israelite nation. He didn't use the Israelite army to attack them. He used Samson as a one-man wrecking crew and just annihilated so many of his enemies. It's also clear from the book of Judges, though, maybe more importantly, that Samson's killings were done when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. It says that numerous times in that story. The Spirit of the Lord came on Samson and he killed these people, killed these people, killed these people. And so that's very interesting. Also interesting, some of you may not be aware of this, but Hebrews 11 mentions Samson as one of the men who made it to the Hall of Fame, as they say. Um, he's a pillar of our faith. Some of you may think that's a pun. It may or may not be. Um, but Samson, to make it into Hebrews 11, probably that tells you God was working with him. And probably that tells you that his actions were justified. Now, regardless of what you think about Samson, good, bad, some of each, whatever, uh, one thing we can learn from that story is that when God wants to destroy people, he can do it. And not only he can do it, but he will do it. And when he does it, it can be pretty scary and pretty extreme. Now, some of you guys are probably thinking, well, that's one isolated incident. Like you said, it's a weird story. Samson is kind of out there. Surely our God is a God of love. Which is true, and there's no denying that. Um, there are numerous, numerous passages in Scripture that talk about that. 1 John 4, 8 being the most obvious, states clearly God is love. It's hard to argue with that. Um, but I read something fairly recently that said the primary attribute or the defining feature of God was his love. And I would have to argue that that's false. Because God is perfectly loving, that's true, but he's also perfectly just, and he's perfectly wise, and he's perfectly holy, and perfectly powerful, and so many other things. And so you can't just take one of those out of that list and say, this is the main thing, and all these other things are down here somewhere. If God is perfect in all of those areas, you can't just pick one. Maybe, maybe perfection is his primary attribute the defining feature, but none of those other things can be. So let's come back to Samson for a second. So is this a weird anomaly in the Bible? Is this just a one-off? God's using Samson to wreak vengeance on all these people. Um, It's not the only time that this happens. If you want some more examples of God's wrath against people, well, you could ask the Babylonians or the Moabites or the Edomites or the descendants of Korah who questioned Moses' authority over Israel. Or you could ask the descendants of Achan who stole some loot when they had looted a city. Or you could ask Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe ask all Noah's neighbors. Oh yeah, that's right. You can't ask any of those people. God wiped them all out from the face of the earth. That's pretty extreme. It's pretty extreme. Sometimes God's judgment seems pretty vicious and pretty harsh. Again, some specific examples. A bunch of young people start mocking Elijah for being bald. And what happens? Two bears come out of the woods and kill 42 of the youths. Seems a little crazy. Um, What about the 450 prophets of Baal, who are hacked to pieces by the Israelites after Elijah's sacrifice on Mount Carmel? That seems pretty extreme, too. What about Uzziah? And you're thinking, who? Who did you say what? Uzziah. He was an Israelite, walking along one day. People carrying the Ark of the Covenant were beside him. They tripped, the Ark started to fall, and he reached out and kept it steady. So the ark didn't fall. So, what did God say? Did He say, Oh, thanks, Isaiah, you saved me there? No. He struck Isaiah dead on the spot because to touch the Ark of the Covenant was forbidden. That seems harsh. What about Solomon's older brother, David's son, who he had with Bathsheba? He died. God killed him as a baby because of David's sin previously. Again, seems pretty extreme. What about, okay, here's one. There's a huge army besieging Jerusalem. It's the army of Sennacherib, and uh, Hezekiah, the king of, of uh, Israel at the time, or Judah, I guess I should say, calls out to God for help. We can't do this on our own. God, help us. And so, what does God do? He sends an angel into the Assyrian camp, kills 185,000 of them in one night. That's, that's pretty crazy, too. And if you want really, if you want examples of God's judgment on nations, probably you should look at Israel first and foremost, they were invaded and persecuted and mocked and harassed and enslaved by all sorts of other nations, the Babylonians, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Amalekites, the Assyrians, um, a whole bunch more. So what's with all this violence, first of all, and also what does this have to do with losing an eye, because I haven't really referenced that since that whole fish thing. So um, let's turn to Hebrews 10. If you've got your Bibles with you, open them up, Hebrews chapter 10, Um, if you don't have your Bible and you are looking at your phone, I'm I'm hoping that's because you're looking up your Bible, maybe you're not, but check out Hebrews 10, we're going to read verses 26 to 31 very soon, I don't know if it's going to be up there or not, that's okay, if you have a Bible, follow along, if you don't, then you can listen. But Hebrews 10, there's a beautiful passage here in verses 19 to 25. It's about confidence and assurance and purity and cleanliness and hope and love and faith and faithfulness and good deeds. All sorts of amazing stuff in there. And then a few verses later, there's another great passage. It talks about perseverance through suffering and eternal rewards. And it talks about God's promises and how confident we are in those. And actually, it's kind of funny because when I grabbed this Bible, I don't usually use the NIV now anymore. This Bible is falling apart, so I have a new one. But um, when I grabbed this one, I saw that both those passages were underlined in my Bible, and the section in between was not underlined. And I kind of thought to myself, why did I talk about this section again? The only one I didn't have underlined in this whole chapter. Um, And maybe you'll wonder why I'm talking about this too once we read it. But let's take a look. Verses 26 to 31 of Hebrews 10. who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray briefly. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage that you've laid on my heart to share this morning. Um, God, I just pray that you would give all of us here, including myself and maybe especially myself, uh, open hearts and open ears to hear and react and respond to what you have to say. Um, This is not an easy passage, and for many it's maybe not a nice passage, but it's in the Bible for a reason, and Lord, I pray that you would help shed some light on the reasons for that this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews 10.26, it's not an easy verse to read. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Doesn't sound very pleasant. Um, And maybe your first thought when you heard that or when you read it is the same as mine. I skimmed through this the first time and I was like, oh yeah, well, obviously, people who uh, sin and choose not to embrace Jesus Christ there's no sacrifice for them. That was their only chance, right? So I'm thinking, oh yeah, okay, well, that's fine. But notice, if you read a little bit more closely, there's a couple things to notice in there. One is that the author of Hebrews uses the word we twice in that passage, in that verse. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth. So who's we? It's not people out there somewhere. It's not the people um, who are doing other things this Sunday morning because they don't want to go to church. It's not your unsaved relatives. It's not anybody in those categories. We means we. And that's kind of scary. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians. And so this is not, again, it's not addressed to people that um, were maybe thinking about conversion at some point. And we'll come back to that later too. He also uses the phrase, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, which again kind of emphasizes the same thing. We here know the truth, for the most part at least. So there's something in here that's important, not just for somebody out there somewhere that you can try and, maybe you're thinking of a specific person, oh yeah, that guy, there's no sacrifice for him. No, it's we, it's us. It's for us. So this chapter, Hebrews 10, actually starts off talking about Jesus' sacrifice being the perfect replacement for the Old Testament sacrifice system. And now the author addresses the rejection of that sacrifice. That's what this passage is about. If you decide that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't good enough, and you're going to go back to something else or over to something different, that's where you run into trouble. So it's a heavy, it's a weighty, it's a sobering verse. I mean, the whole passage is, but this verse in particular, I think, for me at least, you can't just take it lightly or brush it off or skim past it. You have to be aware of what that verse says. Now, I will maybe clarify that a little bit. it's not talking about battles against the flesh or the war with our sinful nature. Paul talks in Romans 7 about, um, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do, and I, what I do is what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do is what I do, or whatever, I think I got those right, but um, that's not what this is talking about, because everybody experiences that. Believers struggle with sin on a daily basis, but that's not what this is addressing, and it's also not addressing uh, the concept of a one-and-done mentality. If you're in the kingdom, you've accepted Christ, and then all of a sudden you're like, you know what, I made that one mistake, I guess that's it, I'm out, I've lost my chance, that's not what this is talking about either. Really what it's talking about is a final and willful rejection of God's mercy and grace. And what does that mean? Well, really, another way to say that is a final and willful rejection of Christ's sacrifice. If, if you are a person who has no desire to give up your sin, and you'd rather keep on sinning rather than living the new life that you've earned, 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 by your acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice, then this is talking about you. If you're a person who has no repentance in your heart when you sin because you think sinning is better than the new life, then this is talking about you. The same kind of language is used in 1 John 3, where it says those who continue to sin are of the devil. It's the same kind of language here. If you're a person who continues to sin because you think that's a better choice than continuing on the path that you've started by accepting Jesus, then this is talking about you. Again, it's not an easy verse. It's weighty. Let's go on to verse 27. I'll start at the end of 26. There's no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Raging fire, that can also be translated as a zeal of fire, which I really like. It's cool imagery, uh, but it's also really scary imagery, so maybe I don't like it, I don't know. But uh, that's an alternate there. And so you read this, a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire, that does not sound like the God we, we serve. What about God's mercy? Well, again, I ask you, what is God's mercy? Really, It's the offering of Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. That's God's mercy. If you're rejecting that gift, then you're rejecting His mercy. And if you've rejected His mercy, there isn't any left for you. And if you have no mercy to claim, all that's left is God's justice, His perfect justice, just as perfect as His love, just as perfect as His mercy, God's perfect justice. And what does His justice dictate for those who rebel? Only judgment. If you're in that boat, you will experience what Revelation 14 calls the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. That doesn't sound pretty. And if you've read the rest of Revelation, it's not pretty. Only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Look at verses 28 and 29. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? One thing to notice near the end of verse 29 there, it talks about the blood of the covenant that sanctified him. If this is talking about a person who has been sanctified by the blood of the covenant, again, that's not just somebody out there somewhere in the world. That's us, we here, who have received the knowledge of the truth. So the author of Hebrews kind of takes a different angle here a little bit and kind of goes back to the Old Testament, as he does often in Hebrews. But under the law of Moses... If someone broke that law, if it was a serious enough offense, that person would be put to death if there were two or three witnesses who could testify against them. So then he says, how much worse is it to spurn God's grace shown through Jesus Christ? The Old Covenant is one thing, but the New Covenant is something totally different. I I was at a grad ceremony on Friday, and so all these grade 12s are walking up, and the principal's up there, right, standing there shaking everybody's hand as they come along, and, you know, it's like 258 people, so it took a long time. Um, but the principal standing here. His arm's probably getting sore. So the guy comes up. One of the grade 12s comes along, hand out, and he does one of these. Instead of shaking the principal's hand, I thought, oh, man, that's kind of cold. Um, that's, a, that's an example of maybe spurning someone. Not quite as extreme as what the book of Hebrews is talking about. But on a very small scale. I was asked by a, numerous people in the past couple of weeks, if there would be a Lord of the Rings reference in this sermon? And, uh, of course, the answer was yes. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't know what I was preaching on at the time, but I was pretty sure there would be an analogy in here somewhere. And sure enough, there is. Um, How many of you have seen those movies? You can raise your hand in church. That's okay. Uh, Yeah, a fair number, a fair number. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a scene from The Two Towers. Now, it's the second movie out of those. Uh, I probably wouldn't say it's my favorite But uh, it's definitely in the top three anyway, so that's good. Um, There's a a scene in that movie where the king discovers a traitor in his court. And so naturally, he throws the traitor out. The guards throw him down the stairs, and he's kind of laying there pitifully, (laughs) broken and bruised and battered. And the king raises his sword above his head to kill the traitor, And just then, one of the heroes of the story steps in and says, no, save his life, let him go. And the hero reaches down to the guy on the steps to give him a hand up. And what does the traitor do? Does he reach out and take his hand and stand up? Does he ignore it and walk away? No, even worse. He spits on the hero's hand and runs off the other direction. That is spurning grace right there. The man who just saved your life offers you his hand, and you spit on it, and run the other way. How much worse it is to spurn God's grace that he's shown through Jesus Christ. So the author of Hebrews says, okay, well, you needed two or three witnesses in the Old Testament to kill somebody, to condemn them. I'll give you three witnesses. And so the first witness is right here in verse 29. It talks about the man who has trampled the Son of God underfoot. That's witness number one. We know the Son of God is greater than Moses. Hebrews talks about that earlier in the book. So if you're trampling the Son of God, that's much worse than ignoring Moses or trampling Moses underfoot. That's number one. Number two, right after that, who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him. The new covenant we're under now is far superior to the old covenant. Otherwise, we'd still be under the old covenant. And if you are a person who treats as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that has sanctified you, that's witness number two against you, and that's strike two against you. I don't know if there's anything... Holier than the blood of the covenant that has sanctified us because it is God's blood. How can you treat that as unholy? And he mentions a third witness, the last phrase of verse 29, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. The spirit is far superior to the law. Romans 6.14 says you are not under law but under grace. That grace has superseded the law. But if you've insulted the Spirit of grace, then that's worse than breaking the law. And so three witnesses he gives, more than enough to condemn. The Son of God, the blood of the covenant, and the Spirit of grace will all testify against a person who decides, you know what? This life of commitment to Jesus is not for me. I'd rather be sinning, and so I'm out more than enough to condemn that person on to verse 30 for we know him who said it is mine to avenge I will repay and again the Lord will judge his people so again at first reading when I was skimming through this I said oh for we know him who said oh yeah okay so that's God they're talking about and we know what God's like he's merciful and loving and forgiving Uh, no not not really what we're going for here those things are true But there's a reason that he says, we know him who said, I will avenge and I will repay and the Lord will judge his people. The focus is not on the love and mercy and forgiveness here. And there's a reason for that. There's the emphasis on those things because of the seriousness of the situation. And verse 31, which kind of culminates the whole passage, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A dreadful thing well how dreadful could it be right again God's a God of love and mercy and compassion and kindness and and gentleness or if you're a King James type of person a God of long-suffering which are all true but verse 30 said we know him who said this stuff we looked at many examples already already of God's judgment God's wrath against people against his enemies And okay, so probably some of you are thinking, yeah, well, Old Testament God, he's pretty vengeful and angry. Um, Sometimes true, yes. Uh, But, you know, the God of the New Testament is known for his goodness and his grace. Well, what about the New Testament? What does the New Testament say about this stuff? Jesus is actually the speaker of the scariest words of eternal punishment and eternal condemnation. It's not some prophet in the Old Testament. It's not Moses. It's Jesus. If you want examples in the New Testament of God's judgment, look at Ananias and Sapphira. What did they do? Well, they basically, what they did was lied about how much money they were giving to the church. Doesn't seem like a big deal. God strikes both of them dead on the spot. That's in the New Testament. One of my favorite books of the Bible, possibly my favorite, is the book of Jude talks a lot about false teachers, what they look like, how they're affecting the church, and it talks a little bit about their fate, and I want to read a couple of verses from Jude about that. Again, New Testament, bear that in mind. So Jude, starting at verse 12, "...these men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind." Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. And then the last part that really clinches it. This is their fate. They are wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. That's the New Testament talking right there. And speaking of Jude, you go next to Revelation which uh, has a lot of examples of God's judgment. Judgment on the worshippers of the beast, and on Babylon the great, and on the whole earth. But I think, in my opinion, the scariest, most frightening, most extreme example of God's judgment in the New Testament, and maybe in the whole Bible, is from Romans chapter 1. Paul talks about people who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and deliberately said, you know what? We're not going to accept that. We're going to go this way. And God's response, multiple times in Romans chapter 1, it says, God gave them over to their own desires. And I don't know if there's anything worse for us than to be given over to our own desires. God says, you know what? That's the way you want it to be. I'm going to step back for a minute and see how that goes for you and it doesn't go well. You can see that pretty easily looking around the world right now. The New Testament, the God of the New Testament is not a different God than the God of the Old Testament. And His judgment is still perfect. So what's the point of all this? And I still haven't talked about the I thing, right? So where does that come in? Well, my main point, I guess, if I have one main point, many of you have heard the expression It's all fun and games until someone loses an eye. And if that's true, then someone just lost an eye because it's certainly not all fun and games. The Christian life is not a game. It's not some whimsical cartoon adventure once you accept Jesus. No, that's not how it is. We've heard now what the Bible says very clearly about those who deliberately keep on sinning after they've heard the truth. And that means for me and for you guys, there's no excuse anymore. You know what the truth is, and you know what the Bible says. It's not some fun and games type of thing. It's serious business. Jesus says in Luke that anyone who follows him better not turn around and start going the other way again. Once you commit... You're in for the long haul. So if the Bible is about Jesus, which it is, and if the book of Hebrews is about, more specifically, Jesus' superiority, which it is, how does this passage really fit in with that? And why in the world would it be flanked by these two amazing, encouraging passages? How does that make sense? So a couple of things, I guess, to talk about In regards to that first of all verse 31 falling into the hands of the living God by default that's all of us right we know that we have a sinful nature we're born as sinners we're in that category of refusing God's grace to start with it's just who we are and I think until we realize that and until we realize how dreadful it actually is to fall into God's hands We don't understand what Jesus actually sacrificed, what that means for us, how extraordinary that was, how mind-boggling that was, and what we've been saved from because of that one action. Most of us are in the same position as the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to. We are believers, at least most of us. And so, again, this is written for us. There's a danger here in keeping on sinning deliberately after we know what the truth is. Now, of course, we also know, as we actually sung earlier, that there's one who stands between us and the wrath of God. Our one defense, our righteousness, Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for him, we would we, we, be lost. But he intercedes for us in that position. So we all have a choice to make when we go from here. Now that we've heard the truth, we've received the knowledge of the truth, and that choice will determine everything about our future. Either we can embrace that gift that most of us have already accepted, it completely wipes away our sin, and we can follow through on that commitment, strive to live uh, lives for God, become more and more like Christ every day. Or we can abandon that decision that we've made, jump ship, and go the other way. If we choose to accept it, if we choose to persevere and keep going along that road, we know we're covered. Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're staying in Christ, there's no condemnation. Your sins are covered. And James chapter 2. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If that were not true, again, we'd be lost to be held in the hands of the living God is to know peace and hope and love. Everything we yearn for in this life, everything we want, everything about life with Jesus is better than life without it. And we have that option to stay in that life. If we accept that gift, we live as if we've, we've accepted that gift. I mean, we still have plenty of work to do. But we can stay in that position by making that choice. If we refuse, however, if we choose to abandon ship and head out the other way, then we're spitting in the face of Jesus, the most powerful, the supreme, the most superior power in the universe. He's above men, he's above Moses, he's above the angels, and if we're going to spit in his face, there's nothing left for us. But a fearful expectation of judgment, and how dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your words. I thank you for the message that you laid on my heart. And Lord, I pray that um, it would be impacting to me most of all, because this is why. I chose to speak on it, but Lord, I pray that you would use these same words to touch others in the congregation. Um, God, I pray that any um, slips of the tongue or errors that I may have made would be uh, forgotten or, or brushed aside because, Lord, there was truth in your word. Your word is truth. And regardless of anything that... That people here may believe about something that I've said or haven't said or whatever. Lord, I just pray that your word would speak for itself. God, as we go from here, and maybe it's a good idea to read this passage again or the whole chapter or the whole book again later on, but Lord, I, I pray that as we go, we would realize the gravity of what we're here for, of what we're doing, that there is a seriousness and a weightiness to the Christian life that I think many of us don't think about a lot of the time. And God, as we move into a time of celebrating communion as well, keep this on our hearts. And Lord, I pray that that would be a meaningful time too. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: not sure I've been in a church with so many preachers. Uh, There's another expository preacher on his way up, and God certainly um, demonstrated that for us. So we can rest assured our young people are in good hands when it comes to the Word of God. As we prepare ourselves now for the the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of uh, Jesus saying that he desired to do this one last time with his disciples before he became that ultimate sacrifice that Joss talked about. And so I think it's fitting this morning after hearing that message for us to take a moment of reflection, asking ourselves, where are we with Jesus? Jesus. For those of us who know Jesus and have invited him into our life, my heart was quickened with am I steadfast in what God's call for us is? But maybe you're here this morning and you've seen that hand reaching out for you in your heart, but you've never reached up to grab it. never really reached up to grab it because if you haven't grabbed it you're like the guy in the Lord of the Rings you spit and you're turning away Jesus is the same yesterday today and tomorrow and he is here by his spirit perhaps reaching out to someone perhaps reaching out to someone If you're that someone, Josh,